Hey, pal, I'm not Johnny. I'm Daryl Macias. <laughs> Don't mind that clown. Welcome, everybody, to our fourth Wilderness and Environmental Live podcast, the audio podcast of the Wilderness and Environmental Medicine Journal, published by the Wilderness Medical Society. All rights reserved. Everything stated may not be an official representation of the Wilderness Medical Society, its heirs, codicils, or employees. Actual mileage may vary. Prices not include tax, title, and license. Some assembly required. Each sold separately. Objects and mirror are closer than they appear. If conditions persist. Consult a physician. Boy, I tell you what, I've been to uh, I've been to three goat neuterings and a world's fair. I ain't never heard nothing like this. <laughs> we have an exciting edition for you for December 2016. We'll be discussing improvised wound irrigation techniques and improvised burn care featured in this month's journal, which is hopefully going to be a whole lot better than listening to some of the recent political commentary. So thanks for your attention. Thank you for your support. We'll then chat about rock climbing injuries with an excerpt taken from the UNM Mountain Medicine podcast that I host. Then we will talk about the new avalanche resuscitation guidelines recently discussed at the International Commission of Alpine Research in Bulgaria. We'll then wrap it up with an update on the Nepal Diploma of Mountain Medicine program. Then we'll wish you a great holiday. First, I gotta say this. Paul Auerbach just released the seventh edition of his famous wilderness medicine textbook and all I gotta say is, wow, it's incredible. However, I'm glad I'm doing kettlebell workouts because it is in two volumes with 2,631 pages of delicious text, along with additional links. Si, senor, es bastante grande. This is the best edition yet, but what I personally like is what the back of the book says. Acquire the knowledge and skills you need with revised chapters, providing expanded discussions of high-altitude medicine, improvisation, technical rescue, telemedicine, ultrasound, and wilderness medicine education, besides 10 new chapters. Now, I had the privilege of co-authoring the improvisation chapter with Ken Iserson, and I'm psyched that it came out nicely. So here's a shout-out to Paul. Great job. And thanks for doing this. It shows that what we do as backcountry healthcare professionals really matters. So let's get on with it, shall we? With our first paper titled, Pressures of Wilderness Improvised Wound Irrigation Techniques. How do they compare? Dr. Suzanne Spano is one of the authors discussing this interesting paper. It's great to have you with us, Sue. And please tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, it's great to be here and thank you for having me. I am from Fresno, California, and I work at University of California, San Francisco Fresno program, where we have a wilderness medicine fellowship and it is the home of the park medic program. I really enjoy long distance backpacking and uh, trail running and marathon running. So that's kind of the motivation behind most of the things that I look at. I have here Dr. Aaron Riley, our first reviewer, who finished our fellowship and DIM program at UNM and is our core faculty for the International Mountain Medicine Center. And he's now the director of our elective. How's life? Well, we stay pretty busy here at the IMMC. Um, recently, we just did medical direction for the Trans-Pecos Ultramarathon down in Big Bend Ranch State Park. Race went well. It's a beautiful area, about as middle of nowhere as you can get in the United States and right on the border with Mexico. We've been preparing for our upcoming winter DIMs. We've been working on our semester DIM class um, and really working in the ED. So a lot going on right now. Well, good to have you here and thanks for participating. 
Thank you. So one of your primary objectives was to evaluate a novel approach to measuring PSI. Can you describe for us the technique and how it compares to other methods? Our objective when we decided to do this study was to compare the pressures that could be measured by improvised irrigation devices and compare them specifically to a standard that we use in emergency departments. Um, and that commercial standard is a, for our emergency department and for many, is a 500 milliliter compressible plastic bottle with an opening at the tip that then has a splash guard. And so that's what we use in our level one trauma center for wounds. And so that was going to be our standard to compare improvised devices against. The improvised devices that we tested were a 10 milliliter syringe that comes in first aid kits, a 10 milliliter syringe with a 14 gauge angiocatheter attached to it with the needle removed, a 50 milliliter Sawyer syringe, which is used to clean water filters, which lots of backpackers would have, a plastic bag punctured with a 14 gauge needle as described by Auerbach and Weiss in several texts as a good improvised choice, a plastic water bottle with the cap punctured with the 14 gauge needle, and also a plastic water bottle with a sports drinking top, the kind that you kind of pop out to suck on. And we also compared a Osprey bladder hydration system because a lot of people use bladder hydration systems when they go in the back country. That's pretty much everything we used. So what we did to test these devices was put them on a support that was level and aim the device toward a piece of glass with a camera behind it and compress the device with maximal manual force and measure where the stream of water hit the glass with the camera. And we used a calculation with a bioengineer from Berkeley to help us calculate the PSI from those measurements. Each test device was tested five times. Uh, what we found is the highest pressures came from small reservoir systems. So the 10 milliliter syringe with 14 gauge angiocatheter had the highest a range between 16 and 49 PSI. A 50 milliliter Sawyer syringe also had a fairly high pressure from 7 to 11 PSI. When you get to the water bottles, the punctured and the sports top water bottle, those range from 7 to 25 and 3 to 7 PSI. Now all of those were at or above the pressure measured by the commercial device, which was again, that compressible water bottle with splash guard used in the ER, and that put out four to five PSI. The bladder and the Ziploc with puncture holes in it didn't really do all that well, one to two PSI or two to three PSI. But we did find in our conclusions that our methods were pretty much validated by pressures reported with, with other types of measurements. And we found again that the sports top water bottle was most similar to the commercial device standard that we use in the ER. So our model is basically a mathematical model. We're calculating pressures using a surrogate measure. And that surrogate measure is obtained by squirting water at a glass and measuring how much it falls during the course of its trajectory using projectile mechanics. So this is a really simple, simple way to measure pressure. It's just measuring the loss of the height of a projectile arc based on the initial force of which it was expelled from the container. Previous methods used in other papers include benchtop model that has a closed system with the pressure gauge inside. Other studies subsequently done showed that using flow meters are a great alternative to that. But that being said, a flow meter is put at the exit of a container and isn't really a good measure when you can't have a, a uniform exit. So you don't have a uniform exit for a plastic bag with holes in it. I mean, you could also put pressure sensors at the wound, but all wounds are a little bit different and pressure sensors are pretty expensive. So that's something that we tried to do, but it was costly and we felt that it couldn't be reproduced. Did you compare your calculated pressures to any type of gold standard? Or in other words, did you confirm your calculated findings for PSI? So we didn't have a gold standard for PSI at all, uh, but we did do two things to kind of give our results a frame of reference. First was we compared 
our pressures to pressures that were obtained from these other studies. And these other studies did use punctured plastic bags, and in these cases were saline bags, and they did use the compressed water out of syringes. So we compared our results with the results of those types of devices being used in the other studies, and they were very similar. The other thing we did, which I think was even more important, was we compared our results to that of a commercial device that's used in most acute care settings so that even if our results didn't externally validate, internally you had a validation that would make the results make sense. But both worked out well. So from previous publications, recommended wound irrigation pressures tend to range in the 6 to 15 PSI uh, range, with some evidence that lower pressures with higher volumes are okay, but the higher pressures can possibly cause increased tissue damage and drive contaminants deeper into the fascial planes. Can you describe your findings and how we can use your calculations to guide improvised irrigation techniques? So a couple things. Recommendations are really all based on who you're asking, and there is not a lot of literature in this area for consensus guidelines to be based off of. So the Wilderness Medical Society recommends high pressure, which they define as 6 to 15 PSI, which you mentioned. But if you look at the College of Surgeons, they feel that high pressure is 35 to 70. So well more than double, if not triple, what high pressure is according to WMS. So there's no consensus on what is high pressure. And according to the College of Surgeons, with certain acute wounds, 35 to 70 PSI is even appropriate. So that being said, there's also a new study out, the Flow Investigators, and they showed if you just used a bulb syringe, which is basically gravity pressure, there was the same rate of complications and open fractures. I mean, that's a pretty egregious type of acute care wound. I really want to put the recommendation thing in quotes because it really depends on who you ask. Now, to answer your question on what would I do, I think really the internal bias is to reproduce what you would do in a definitive care setting. And the water bottle with Sports Top really does this and is a good choice. That being said, you have to all put it in the context that our recommendations are based on very little literature stretched out over maybe 10 papers over 30 years. In our DIM program, we just did a wound irrigation lab and we mentioned your study. What we do is we contaminate the wound model with fluorescein impregnated dirt and use a woods lamp. Plus, we use many of the methods you described. We also use running faucet water for irrigation and test that. But the funny thing was, when we used the Ziploc plastic bag, it exploded. Now, I suppose you can increase the PSI and you can squeeze, but not so much because you'll destroy the bag. Aaron? So since your findings suggested that both the 10cc syringe with angiocatheter and the 10cc syringe by itself both consistently had pressures over 16 PSI, should we avoid using these methods for irrigation altogether? Maybe not using them is not the right answer because high pressure is really detrimental in chronic wounds, which I hope we're not seeing in the wilderness, because uh, that's where you really drive bacteria into planes. And over irrigation in lightly contaminated wounds is really an issue with high pressure. But again, wilderness wounds tend to be very contaminated. And I think when it comes to ideal irrigation pressure, we really have an ongoing debate and the jury's still out. That said, I did want to mention that there is a real limitation to the 10cc syringe method. And I don't think that limitation is the pressure, but really the volume delivery per use that makes it very impractical. Also, the speed of emptying really impacts pressure delivery. So if someone empties a 10cc syringe over 60 seconds instead of over two seconds, you're going to have very different pressures. And so I think really the next step naturally would be to set some sort of protocol where you empty a reservoir of a specified size in a certain amount of time to have a consistent result across people using that method. 
Thanks to you, Sue, and our audience for this educationally rich discussion. That's a great point, yes. Thank you very much for having me. Here's Johnny! Are we ready, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls? Our next paper is Management of Burn Injuries in the Wilderness, Lessons from Low Resource Settings. And I have with me our reviewer, Dr. Jonathan Drew, who just completed our fellowship DIM course and did a great job. So, Jonathan, tell us about any big exploits coming up. Good morning, Daryl. My name is Jonathan Drew. I, uh, I recently completed the DIM fellowship with Daryl here at UNM. And right now I'm working for Presbyterian in a PRN capacity while I'm waiting for my first mission with Médecins Sans Frontières or Doctors Without Borders. Our authors, Dr. Bitter and Erickson, aren't on the lines yet. So, Jonathan, let's start this thing, shall we? Let's start with a synopsis. This is a review article on burn management in austere settings. Did you know this, Jonathan? Burns comprise 8% of all wilderness-related injuries. Yikes! Now, lots of these injuries are minor, but keep in mind that not only campfires, but propane explosions and even touching a hot stove or lantern are causes as well as bad, bad wildfires. And unfortunately, here in New Mexico, we often see burns from people throwing gas in the fire or smokers lighting their cigarettes while on oxygen. It's sad, but true. Hey, hey, stop laughing. It's true. Oh, gosh. Hey, there goes the parrots. We got we got seizures here. We got active con convulsion here. Give me that out of All right. So we're having a good time. A literature review was performed to find evidence from low resource settings that supports alternative or, I like this, improvised therapies adapted to care for burns in the wilderness or in a remote setting out of the country. And... Now, I broke this up because after decompensating into laughter, we continued on and on for 10 minutes having a discussion without the actual authors. But we didn't realize that they were on the line all along listening to this conversation. So when we realized that they were on the line, we all had a really good laugh. Then we continued on with the discussion with an introduction for Dr. Cindy Bitter. Hi, this is Cindy Bitter. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I am faculty at St. Louis University in the Department of Emergency Medicine, as well as the College for Public Health and Social Justice. I actually just completed an international emergency medicine and global health fellowship at the University of Illinois, Chicago. And one of the projects I undertook was doing clinical work in Uganda, reviewing some literature to rewrite their protocols. I did an extensive lit search on treatment of burns in Sub-Saharan Africa and was chatting with one of the faculty, former faculty at UIC, Dr. Erickson, and, and he had just come back from a trek in Nepal and seen a patient who used alternative wound therapies. So we decided to combine these experiences and write a literature review that might be applicable to the wilderness setting. One of the things that's really fascinating about burn care in Sub-Saharan Africa, going back to the discussion about the fluid resuscitation, is that when a burn center in Malawi tried to adopt more what we would like to think of as modern or more developed burn care, their mortality in children actually went up as they increased fluid resuscitation and performed early excision and escherotomy and skin grafting. That was not a randomized trial, that was a before and after comparison, but it did speak to the issues of trying to implement what we consider modern therapy in other settings and more historic settings. And also, I believe one of the complications came from fluid therapy because 
another trial of sepsis in children in sub-Saharan Africa showed increased mortality with volume loading, which we consider a standard of care for resuscitation. And that was one of the reasons that we pulled the review and came to look at some of the alternative fluid volume resuscitation formulas comparing Parkland versus modified Brook versus Brook versus the rule of tens. Unfortunately, there's not actually been a head-to-head -head comparison of these volume resuscitation guidelines, but there does seem to be some anecdotal evidence that the Parkland formula may over-resuscitate. Cindy, do you think that part of the reason that they're over-resuscitating these children may be that they're overestimating the body surface area burned? There's lots of data in the U.S. and the Western world that we overestimate percentage of body surface area burned. Yes, that is definitely a problem when you look at more experienced providers versus less experienced providers, burn centers versus community centers that don't have as much experience. The burn TBSA tends to be overestimated, obviously leading to increased fluid volumes. But because they've also shown problems in sub-Saharan Africa with over-resuscitation in sepsis, I do believe there's probably some physiologic differences with the chronic anemia, chronic malnutrition. After doing this review, do you have any different recommendations for the superficial partial thickness burn care comparing what you've seen and what your recommendations were in sub-Saharan Africa to what we think of as standard of care here in the developed world? Burn care is evolving. And what I learned when I was trained some years ago was silver saladine ointments, the SSD, and that's really falling out of favor among burn centers, but it's still used in the community. There is data that shows that regular antibiotic ointment is just as good for a superficial partial thickness burn. And I think we underutilize that. There are lots of problems with SSD, but that is still standard of care in much of the low and middle income countries. It's a false gold standard when we're looking at some of these alternative therapies because we do know there are treatments that are better, but we are also comparing it to what is currently in use. I actually was very impressed by the literature basis supporting honey as a alternative dressing. Yes, we do have to be careful about botulism. Certainly in the U.S., there are medical preparations of honey that can be used. Once again, taking something that should be fairly simple and making it into a commercial product that is not readily improvised. But I think for most cases, the types of honey that's available in the low- and middle-income countries that's food grade is probably adequate. That may be a particular problem in people that are malnourished, potentially hypoalbuminic, and do not have the ability to regulate their volume status as well as people that have full nutrition. So in sub-Saharan Africa, they tend to use lower volumes for resuscitation, and they are very, very experienced using oral rehydration for their burns compared to IV. Cindy, can you comment on some of the commonalities that you saw in these improvised wound dressings and maybe generalize for our listeners things to look for in potential improvised wound dressings when they don't have the standard of care agents available? Yeah, I believe for the type, the dressing material, it, it varies a little bit by the class of things we were discussing, but certainly honey, the benefits of honey we think are a combination of the hyperosmolarity as well as some of the trace elements and other compounds such as inhibings that are present in honey. There's much better evidence for honey compared to some of the other agents. Honey, 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 honey. Sugar paste also has the advantage of being hyperosmolar, but it doesn't have the other compounds. 
And when you look at some of the other more plant-based therapies, you do have a starchy matrix that is probably hyperosmolar as well with the boiled potato peel dressing. I think with the leaf type dressings, again, there's evidence for banana leaf. There's not evidence for other types of waxy leaves, but I believe the benefits would be the same. So certain palm leaves, some citrus leaves, yucca, agave, those leaves have the very similar surface with the waxiness. Once the leaves are cleaned, they should work the same. I would not want to use anything that had a lot of aromatic properties because you worry about other species-specific compounds that might be irritants. With regards to the fruit-based dressings, the literature on that is very, very interesting. The bio literature in the initial papers that discussed it, it was literally mashed papaya. You're taking a preparation directly from the fruit. The study for kiwi was the same. There's not human evidence, but there was animal evidence that kiwi worked in a similar manner. And you have the enzymatic debridement in those agents, which is thought to reduce SR formation that might delay wound healing. The commercial preparation is called Mexibrid as a trade name, and it's an enhanced preparation of bromelain, which is one of the enzymes in pineapple. There's not really any studies of pineapple flesh. The commercial product is derived from the pineapple stems. Unfortunately, as a commercial product, it's not well described how it's, how it's actually made. So they say that it's concentrated bromelain and some other proteolytic enzymes, but they don't describe a method that we could use to improvise that type of preparation in the field. I guess in summary, it seems like there's a lot of promising potential with using these flesh-based dressings, but we don't, since we don't have any human data or human studies, that this would sort of all be theoretical and benefit. But the potential there for using papaya, kiwi, pineapple as an initial dressing is there. I think it's reasonable to use mashed papaya or mashed kiwi if you don't have any standard agents. I would be a little more cautious about pineapple because I don't know and was not able to determine the concentration of pineapple, of bromelain in pineapple. So I don't know how concentrated those enzymes would be. I would also be worried that pineapple flesh is a little bit acidic and might be painful. The benefit of some of the fruit-based therapies is the presence of vitamin C because super therapeutic doses of vitamin C given systemically are being trialed in Japan and seem to have good improvement in healing of the burn wounds. We don't have evidence for local application of vitamin C or other antioxidants, but there's certainly a theoretical benefit to having some free radical scavengers and antioxidants locally available at the wound. And that would be present in very high concentrations with papaya and also with kiwi. Here's a case. One guy burns the tip of his finger while boiling water and it falls on the leg of a friend. I got a bucket of ice in my igloo. Should I dump it on the other guy's leg? I feel like cold therapy is something that's widely used, yet despite that, we don't have good evidence for optimal duration, optimal temperature. We do know that direct application of ice is probably deleterious, is harmful. I just found it very interesting that if you go delve into the literature, there is actually evidence for something that's widely done that we don't, as we're being taught our home remedies or our first aid or our doing what grandma says, there's evidence for these therapies that is not part of our medical teaching. But there is evidence that it not only controls pain, which is beneficial in and of itself, but that it decreases the severity of the wound. So ice or cold water treatment, who wins? Definitely cold water therapy. Cold water treatment then? Yeah. Direct application of ice is harmful and potentially can increase 
the depth and the size of the wound because you're decreasing circulation locally. Even ice water might be problematic, although anyone who's had a burn can probably relate to the fact that sticking your finger, burned finger in a glass of ice water is very helpful for pain. It hmm. probably shouldn't be ice water. It should probably be cold tap water. Ideally, you want potable water, but that may not be as readily available. Well, we've run out of time. Some other thoughts to ponder would be, at what point in time would cold water or ice or whatever be futile? And although one paper demonstrated no danger with hypothermia, I would be careful to aspirate or not. And the modified Brook formula calling for 2 milliliters per kilogram per percentage total body surface area in an adult or 3 milliliters per kilogram per percent in children of lactated ringers in the first 24 hours might suffice and stave off the enormous swelling in burn patients, although I'm going to do a little more literature search on that. Plus pain control, oh, muy importante. And I like the idea of potato peels on burns. What am I talking about? Guess you'll have to read the paper. But for now, thanks Cindy, thanks Jonathan, and to our audience. And now, let's continue on to more fun. In fact, let's take a little break here while I eat this potato. But I'm going to need a little help because we have a bunch of callers on the hotlines right now. So, while we wait for me, my friend Rick Dees will take some calls. All right, here we go, Rick Dees on the hotline. By the way, anytime it's a free call. If you have time, I always love it. 1-800-RICK-DEES, 1-800-R-I-C-K-D-E-E-S. Mike, what's up? Hey, Rick, I'm going on an overnight flight to Germany, mm -hmm. and I might visit the pharmacy and get some medication. Mm -hmm. How do you say the word constipated in German? The word constipated? I, I took German for a while. It's far from pooping. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? Are you there? Hi, so bad. What? <laughs> Quick news flash. Surprise, surprise. I wanted to catch up with Dr. Mark Beverly, who is our IFMGA mountain guide for our DIM program and a core member of our International Mountain Medicine Center at UNM. And Mark, I've known you as a paramedic, but you went on to become a physician assistant. Then you got your PhD with distinction from the well-renowned UNM Exercise Science Department. Now, Mark is also the chief operating officer of Strike Rescue and the New Mexico Medical Clinics and is the ICAR Avalanche representative for the United States. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your trip to Bulgaria with the International Commission of Alpine Rescue and some of the new things that are coming down the pike with respect to avalanche rescue. Yeah, um, so I'm the avalanche delegate for the Mountain Rescue Association this year. And, you know, I've been fortunate to be able to go for the last several years and, and really see a lot of the progression, the Avalanche Rescue Commission and the information that's coming out of there. So it's been very impressive and some of that information should get disseminated throughout the United States. So I'm, I'm glad we're doing the podcast. The other thing that came out of the ICAR Congress was something interesting, and it's this checklist for avalanche victims. And there's been some changes with regard to burial times, patency of airway, and potassium. Can you comment on that? We've seen some, some saves on a worldwide basis based on a couple of things. One is, is hypothermia, and the other one is having the presence of an, uh, an air pocket. An air pocket, and we're, we're talking about avalanche here, um, but not necessarily so. So you could, you could extrapolate this into other simple hypothermic scenarios as well. Specifically to the avalanche checklist, burial time has gone up to 60 minutes. And if you're less than 60 minutes and you have vital signs, you just do first aid. 
if you don't have vital signs, you're going to do CPR and you're going to look at a core temperature. Now, this was the, the burial time was based on a 50% survival rate, which previously was 35 minutes. Is that right? That's correct. So you had about a 50-50 shot of living, you know, um, at about 50 minutes. And then 30, 35 minutes, it kind of started to dwindle off there. So there was a real sharp sigmoidal curve, and then it plateaued off at 15 minutes at a very low percentage rate. But they've looked at the data a bit more stringently and what they've found is that people with air pockets specifically are living or have the potential to live longer so if you can have or make an air pocket then what you have is ability to give your buddies time to get you so if you looked at somebody who for example they're greater than 60 minutes you go down the list and they have no vital signs that do they have a patent airway that's the next question you're really going to ask if they don't have a patent airway, then you're done. Um, so meaning, in a patent airway might be maybe an ice concretion down the trachea or an ice mask. Exactly. And some people might ask, well, what about if I could crike them or whatever? But the research really hasn't gone that far. So the reality is, is like when you think about reality of being able to, to respire and ventilate, like you're really, you're, you've already defeated that by having, you know, having an ice mask or having a plugged airway. Having an, a patent airway with no ice mass, no plugged airway, then you have to start looking at EKG or ECG or, and trauma. So if they've had no trauma or bodily, you know, like a fatal injury, then you go to EKG. So if they have asystole, then you're going to look at, back again at that patent airway. And if they don't have a patent airway, you're done. If you do have a patent airway, then you got to go to core temperature. And the core temperature's changed a little bit. So now it's less than 30 degrees then you've got a long transport or multiple casualties. You have to figure that out. And if yes, then you know, you might be going down to the potassium at that point. Mm. And the potassium level is, levels have changed. So if you're looking at 10 to 12 millimoles, which is before, now it's down to 8 millimoles. So really being a bit more conservative in that regard for transport because they're saying, well, based off of the cases that we had on scene where the potassium was greater than 8, then they really didn't have a positive outcome. But if it was less than eight, then you can go ahead and go to transport to a facility that has ECMO. And in the United States, you know, certainly, and I think that's kind of most of our listening ship here, it's not really well coordinated. I know that people might take offense to that, but if you look at some place like Poland, and I'll use the rescue group Toper, which those guys have a very small region, but they have very acute injuries with hypothermia. And there have been some cases where they've had avalanche burial, had a couple avalanche burials in the same event with, you know, kind of a cohort study, really, where mm. two women got buried, one with, with no airway, and they coded her for 45 minutes and she died. The other one, Peyton Airway, hypothermic arrest. So this is a very big decision. Mm. Is this a hypothermic arrest or is this an asphyxiation death? And right. if you can't figure that out on field, you've got a big problem. So we really want to focus on is if this is a hypothermic arrest, somebody that had a patent airway and actually got hypothermic and then arrested. So back to the example, the other lady was found in sinus bradycardia and then went into V-fib. They shocked her a bunch of times and put her, you know, they had an auto pulse that failed and they did another concept that we can talk about, which is intermittent CPR for mm -hmm. five kilometers over complex terrain to the trailhead where they put her in an ambulance, got her to the landing zone, helicopter picked her up, took her to the major trauma center. They put her on ECMO for nine days, <laughs> nine days. And she walked out of the hospital, no neurological deficits. Wow. And did she have a potassium checked? She did. I can't, I have to bring that up on my notes, but the potassium was checked, but she, her core temperature was something like 15 or 17 degrees Celsius. The key to more success is to have a lot of pillows, a lot of 
talk about a lot. So you're, you're mentioning a few interesting things here, one of which is that in the United States, it'd be nice if we could work with ski patrol service or a helicopter. Who would have a point-of-care type of device where we could check potassium? Yeah, and it's not just potassium, you know. Um, remember, Daryl, we also got to check core temperatures as well. So a lot of people are like, well, how are you checking core temperatures? Well, you got to intubate them. And one of the parts that you can, or one of the things you can do is not just intubate them, but you can also put... An esophageal. Exactly. Device, yeah. So that's really what we're measuring here. We got to have both of those things in place to be able to follow this. And honestly, you know, I mean, I've been around the country a lot with a lot of mountain rescue groups and a lot of medical groups and a lot of aeromedical groups, and there's only a couple that might be up to par on this international recommendation. So you can get my report from MRA.org website, or you can go to ICAR, and you can get the new avalanche victim resuscitation checklist and just download it. That comes directly from the MedCom. It's really simple, and it's really pared down into the basic elements. If you're involved with something like this, you've got a mountain rescue group, you've got a, a search and rescue group, you've got a an ER, if you're a level one trauma center, you've got ECMO capability, get things tighter up, really be able to figure out how you can serve the community by doing and following this checklist. This truly is an international standard and international recommendation for best practice at this point. And honestly, like we really haven't seen this in the United States yet. I haven't seen it. Um, I'm an area instructor. We don't even use this. We don't teach this. It's not a medical part of avalanche rescue and, and area doesn't teach medical. So who's doing this? You know, we're doing it at UNM. We're, you know, really this needs to get disseminated amongst the masses in the United States, especially places that are really prone to avalanche. It's a big deal. This is cutting edge. Well, thanks so much for this time, and I think we're going to get a lot out of it. Yeah, thanks, Daryl. I appreciate it, and uh, we'll uh, chat with you soon. Now, since we ran out of time, we're going to catch up with Mark just a little bit later on the next podcast about some of the other things that is coming down the pipe with respect to mountain rescue. Nice to meet you. <laughs> nice to meet you, too. Yes. We just would like to offer you some savings on your gas and electric. Thank you. Sorry? Yes. Just uh, basically compare the prices with your present company and uh, offer you better deal, possibly. It's Thank you. I'm very honored. Uh, are you interested, sir? Yes. Okay. I'll just ask you a few simple questions. Uh, can you tell me a uh, first line of your address and your postcode? Are you in some way connected with the Institute? No, I'm calling from London Energy, from That's North right. Island. Are you a dog trainer? Sorry? Oh, do you have dances with walls? Uh, I'm calling from London Energy on behalf of London Energy. It's a company for gas and electric. Do you know what Dr. Meinheimer is going to say at the press club dinner tomorrow? Okay. I wish there was some way I could repay you. Uh, how about dinner? I know this little out-of-the-way place that serves great Viking food. I know. Unless I get all those people to a hospital quickly, I can't even be sure of saving their lives. I'm sorry. I'm not wearing any underwear. Uh, yes. This kind of a joke? Yes. Well, that's great. Uh, I've been dating, too. Nice girl, an author. She wrote the book on male sexual dysfunction. You've probably read it. I wish I had a quarter pounder with tea every time I heard that. Hello? Hello. Yes. Uh, hello, can you confirm for me your first line of your address? Another way I can't really check um, how much we can save your money. You're not telling me the truth. No, I'll tell you the truth. 
You're not telling me the truth. Your lies are like bananas. They come in big yellow bunches. I want answers, Cherry Case. We're going to talk about the evaluation of hamate injuries and rock climbing published by Christoph Lutte and colleagues in this month's journal. So let's go for the brief summary. And if you're interested, I attached a podcast I did last year on our UNM Mountain Med podcast on iTunes, where we discuss finger injuries in rock climbing in a little more depth. And there's a little primer on climbing in France as well. It's kind of fun. Yes, I had a great time too in that podcast, as you will hear. So let's do this. Part of the beauty of me is that I'm very rich. Now remember that the hamate bone is on the ulnar and the palmar side of the hand slash wrist, or on the pinky side of things. You can feel this bone stick out a bit with your other hand quite easily, and if you traumatize that little horn of bone from falling on it onto a firm surface after trying to send that hard boulder problem, or you're mountain biking hard and you got a little handlebar trauma to that area, your hand is gonna hurt. Big time. But did you know you can fracture that little bone without direct trauma? Yes siree folks, if you are a high performance rock climber, you betcha sugar britches. The hook acts as a pulley for the flexor tendons of the ring and small or pinky finger. You crank on that under clean crack or hold, as you'll see in the article, which is the big bad cause of these injuries. And you crank on that under clean hold with those tiny flexed smaller fingers. And you cock that wrist a little bit to the pinky side of the hand, or what we would say an ulnar deviation, repetitively. Well, this is going to be a prime setup for this type of injury. Now, the guys who wrote the article have written many articles on rock climbing injuries, so I trust their experience. And in this case series, they took 12 high-performing climbing monsters who climbed between 510A and 514. And don't worry, I explain these ratings a bit in that later podcast. Well, anyways. Hello? Please leave a message. I've got news for you. You're mine now. You belong to me. I belong to you. Do you know, even know what state you're calling? Yeah. Climbers who did not experience direct trauma to the hamate area but had pain to the hamate area were the candidates that were studied. And they had mild pain at rest, and then they had bad, bad pain with climbing. So the authors described this provocation test where you palpate the hamate area with your thumb, you elicit tenderness with slight wrist flexion and ulnar deviation, that is, the patient's hand, while you flex their small and ring fingers with your other free hand. However, you cannot elicit much tenderness or pain if you do the same maneuver, but instead of flexing the wrist, you extend the wrist a bit. And then you radially deviate that wrist towards the thumb side as opposed to the ulnar deviation to the pinky side. Read the text if you don't understand what I'm talking about. Now listen here. Plain x-ray can miss this injury, so a CT or MRI are helpful. Most of the time, conservative therapy with splinting and discontinuing climbing for three months is best with a follow-up CT scan to confirm bone union. Unfortunately, NSAIDs were not found to be very helpful, but those who received steroid injections seemed to do well. The authors ended up doing a few ORIFs or surgeries, but they're not fans of cutting out or excising the hook of the hamate, if possible. So, it's a rare lesion, but it makes for good reading. Now here's the excerpt from the podcast I did last year discussing the more common finger flexor injuries in rock climbers. Très bien. Our discussion is going to center around two articles. One published by Scheffel in Wilderness and Environmental Medicine, March 2015, entitled Injury Trends in Rock Climbers, Evaluation of a Case Series of 911 Injuries Between 2009 and 2012, 
and another article by Schweitzer, Sport Climbing from a Medical Point of View, in the Swiss Medical Weekly 2012. Now look, the Europeans have done more studies in rock climbing injury. Most studies have been done in a more controlled sport climbing environment, where the climbing is pre-protected by permanent bolts, be it outside or in the gym, and where 80%, yes, 80% of the injuries, folks, are upper extremity injuries, since sport climbing routes require incredible amounts of upper body strength, versus longer mountainous alpine routes where roots are committing because of poor sparse protection leading to falls with a larger proportion of lower extremity injuries. Now I recall climbing Half Dome earlier in my climbing career. If you don't know Half Dome's this 2,000 foot vertical climb in Yosemite and I undertook this with a friend. We had just started the day when my friend took the lead a quarter of the way up and bling 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 falling! Although he was roped up, a few pieces came out and he fell 20 feet onto a ledge with an obvious ankle fracture dislocation. Needless to say, things got interesting and boy, I had wished I had knew about wilderness medicine then. Anyways, lower extremity injuries and more severe injuries, as well as rockfall types of injuries and weather-related injuries are more common on these long, what we would call, alpine routes. But again, what we will talk about is sport climbing, which has actually increased climber performance over the past several years. And it has also brought on new climbing-specific injuries, such as closed flexor tendon pulley injuries or lumbrical muscle disruption. To give you a little perspective on how dangerous climbing is overall compared to some other sports, the injury rates for sport climbing is about 1 to 2 injuries for every 10,000 hours of climbing. Mountaineering is about 6 injuries per 10,000 hours of climbing. Soccer is 310 injuries per 10,000 hours, and rugby a whopping 2,860 injuries per 10,000 hours. So let's talk pulleys. I refer you to the site orthobullets.com to describe to you where some of these pulleys and tendons on the flexor surface of the hand are located. Now, if you were to look at your hand, you could imagine on that palm surface of your hand, there are these tendons that go from the tip of your fingers down to your forearms. And there are several tendons that allow you to flex or clench your fist or to grip a handhold. Now, of course, the shortest distance between two objects would be a straight line. But it ends up that when you bend the tips of your fingers, well, wouldn't you expect to see your tendons just kind of go straight in instead of preserving that nice palm shape of your hand? Well, here's the secret. There are these little things called pulleys, which actually keep the tendons from bowing out or doing something what we call bowstringing. So simply said, pulleys prevent bowstringing of the finger flexor tendons. And bowstringing is not a good thing because it results in weakness and mobility limitation when you flex your fingers. Now, these pulleys have names. There's an A1 pulley. This overlies the metacarpal phalangeal joint, or your knuckle joint, which is on the palm side of your hand. And if you break this A1 pulley, you get something called trigger finger, where your finger is kind of flexed permanently. Not a good thing to have. Then there's another pulley, the A2 pulley, which contains the finger flexors at the proximal flanks, which is, as you may recall, each of your fingers are composed of three bones. The bone closest to your knuckle is what we call the proximal flanks. And what some climbers do is they will actually put tape around that bone called the proximal flanks to kind of augment or enhance the A2 pulley's action. However, we don't know if that really works or not, but it's a prevention strategy used. So now let's put this into a little more climbing perspective. Enough of this anatomy stuff. Say you're holding onto a small crimper edge. If it's small enough, you might be holding on with a so-called closed crimp grip position. For those of you that don't climb a lot, 
Look at your hands and imagine holding a small edge on the tips of your fingertips. I want you to flex or bend your PIP joints 90 degrees and then I want you to hyperextend your DIP joints, those little joints next to your fingernails. Kind of hyperextend them as the tip of your fingers. Hang on for dear life to that little tiny, tiny edge. Now, brace your thumb on top of those closest DIP joints, which would naturally be your index finger and maybe your third finger. Or you could even go ahead and put your thumb over your fingernails. And this is what we call the closed crimp grip. Now this is mechanically interesting because it actually allows you to put a higher load and therefore higher stress on your fingertips than you would by just simply hanging on to a small edge with, let's say, a claw-like grip. And so climbers can use this to increase their relative strength, but it definitely comes at a cost because it increases injury potential. I'm so wasted! <laughs> so what is recommended now is to not use your thumb in an enclosed crimp position. Instead, don't use your thumb. Adopt an open crimp position because this diminishes injury potential. If you increase the load on your fingertips, or rather on these tendons like really suddenly, such as after your foot slips or you go for a dynamic move where a sudden application of force on your fingers happens in one instant after having thrown your entire body up into midair in order to grip onto that little itty bitty ledge, well, your A2 pulley can likely disrupt, especially if you're not well trained. A snapping sound and sudden pain will indicate you tore that A2 or that A4 pulley. What do you get? Painful flexor tendon bowstringing is seen, or it's palpated when you bend or flex those fingers with resistance. You can also see tendon bowstringing on an ultrasound. You can also see tendon bowstringing on an ultrasound. So what's the treatment? You get hurt now? Stop climbing now. Ice the area, and if it's just a pulley strain, Shuffle classifies this as a grade 1 pulley strain, where there's no bowstringing on ultrasound. And for a grade 1 pulley strain, you don't need to immobilize that finger. You just simply tape that phalanx that's closest to your big knuckle, if it's an A2 pulley strain, or you tape the mid phalanx if it's an A4 pulley strain. Then you basically do, after the inflammation is gone, range of motion exercises, an easy activity after a month. Don't overdo it. And then you can return to climbing after six weeks. When you start to climb, you want to tape the area for three months. Now, on the other hand, if there is a two millimeter or greater dehiscence of that tendon from the bone or two millimeters of bowstringing, now we're talking grade two or three pulley injury scores. And what do you do with these grade two or three pulley injury scores? Well, again, conservative therapy. And then here's where things get interesting. You do immobilization where the finger is kept extended or even a little bit hyperextended with what we would call a finger cot or something similar for 10 to 14 days. And some hand surgery specialists would say take that splint off at night where you can do four weeks of range of motion exercises. There is a pulley protection device that is an elastic ring that goes over the injured pulley. Or what you could do is simply tape the affected area. After six to eight weeks of healing, you can do early, easy, sport-specific activities such as light gripping exercises or easy climbing with taping. And then you can get on your full activities after three months with six complete months of taping while climbing. Lastly, there's grade four injury where there are multiple ruptures or there's even a fracture and you may need surgical repair. Chronic pulley tendonitis is another problem. Usually, this is when there's a pulley that was injured and then there's scar formation or even something called a synovitis. Training intensity reduction strict prevention of that crimp grip position, the non-steroidal anti-inflammatories or steroid infiltrations, which is debatable to some and might actually reduce tendon strength, 
have all been used with fairly good results, but sorry, there's no exact numbers as to success in the literature, folks. Believe me, I've done the literature search. Ain't there yet. Belay's off. I just finished leading this climb. Now, talk about Verdun and some of these cool areas in France to climb. Verdun is big wall sport climbing on nice blue limestone rock pockets and cracks, but it's committing since you've got to descend down several hundred feet by rappel to near the river bottom. Then you climb up. Now the Calanques overlook the Mediterranean. This is in southern France. Imagine climbing this beautiful white limestone over a magnificently blue ocean. Then you jump into the water. Ah, glorious. Many of these limestone crags in France have very small holes. They're maybe large enough for one to two fingers. And these pockets might just only accept your tiny, tiny end of your fingertips. Ouch! See you later. We're back in the Maison. Let's talk about these pockets. They might only accept fingertips. To increase finger load and strength of that one finger, that monodoit, the other fingers simply just kind of hang outside, and they're almost completely flexed and bent inside the palm. As you extend that one finger, that monodoit, and it is extended, it is straightened out, except for that little tiny end of the finger, that little tiny flexed DIP joint. What does this type of maneuver do? It increases a climber's strength by 50%, but it causes something called lumbrical muscle strain. And the lumbrical muscles are the muscles in between the base of your hand. Remember, you have actually got these bones called metacarpal bones inside the actual hand. And between them are the muscles that allows you to do crazy things like pull on a finger pocket. And then you can crush it, baby. But if after having done such a move causes pain in the palmar area, you're considering a lumbrical muscle strain or even a lumbrical muscle tear. When this happens, careful stretching exercises immediately and gently after the injury, icing the area, and doing conservative therapy is the way to go. Progressive return of climbing is okay when that pain is gone. So that's treatment in a nutshell. What about prevention? That's always a good thing to go to, no? Well, sudden loading of the flexor tendons should be avoided unless you are trained. Progressive careful training is necessary. Now, some elite climbers train on this thing called a campus board, which is composed of horizontal thin slats of wood attached to a wide board in a ladder-like fashion. And this board is often inclined in an overhanging fashion so that the user's legs dangle. They can't use their feet on this campus board. It's a great tool to increase finger strength, but it must be done slowly. The closed crimp grip and lunging to those holds in a dynamic fashion, as I described earlier, could ruin those pulleys. The best recommendation to prevent those pulley injuries is easy, progressive climbing warm-ups for 20 to 30 minutes. Schweitzer showed a 30% decrease in tensile forces over the first 120 climbing moves. So, climbing 3 to 4 routes with 30 moves or bouldering 8 to 12 problems while mildly increasing intensity appears to mitigate pulley tears. So here's a summary, folks. Pulley tears, especially the A2 and A4 pulleys, are likely with a closed crimp grip. There are four grades of pulley injuries. Most treatment is hinged on conservative treatment. Finger pocket injuries strain those lumbricals. Again, conservative treatment, but generally climbing through an injury will impair prognosis and healing. Proper warm-ups in reducing campus board use is sensible. Remember, tendon strength development takes months versus weeks for muscle strength, and consequently, so does the healing. So be careful on the rocks, and until the next time, happy climbs. Welcome to the International Corner. 
Let's go to Nepal, where we will discuss the Nepal Diploma of Mountain Medicine program with Dr. Sushil Pant. I talked to him on a visit he made here to UNM just recently. Let's go. So we're going to talk about the Nepal DIM, which is really exciting. And it's sponsored by the Mountain Medicine Society of Nepal. And I got to talk to Sushil about it in my office. And Sushil, tell me a little bit about yourself first and how you came about being involved in the Nepal DIM course. I, I am Sushil Pant, a medical graduate from Tribhuvan University, teaching hospital in Nepal. And within that, when I was a medical student, I was involved in Mountain Medicine Society. It's a society of like-minded doctors and medical students who are working under Dr. Buddha Basnath and learning about high-altitude physiology and altitude medicine. So I was introduced to it in my early medical school days, like my second year. Since then, I was involved in it. And coming to the, my final year of med, uh, med school, I got the opportunity to do the Nepalese DIM course, which we started in 2010. And after completing my DIM course in 2014, I thought that it would be nice if I could contribute uh, to our society. And hence, I coordinated the next DIM that was held in 2015, November, December. I graduated from med school in 2014 and then since I did DIM course as well, I went to Everest region and worked uh, on my own mm. for six months. So with the Nepali DIM program, what is the length of time that you have for each course and what are some of the activities that you do? Uh, our course, uh, we plan to do every year, but uh, because of uh, limited resources and man manpower, we are now doing it like every one and a half year or two years. So this time it will be in November, uh, December 2017, since our course, uh, course was in uh, November, December 2015. Two years two after, years. Uh, because of the resource and manpower constant that we had after the earthquake. And oh, right, after the yeah. earthquake, yeah. yes. So you're picking it up a post-monsoon season, November, December, when it'll be better weather, is that right? Yeah, it is, uh, and it's easier to find instructors as well, like mountain guides. Since it's in fall and it's not climbing season, so mountain guides can go look after their trekking business, or we can hire them and take uh, them to our training course. And you told me about some of the activities. You might have a week or so of didactic activities in Kathmandu. And you talked about doing some rock climbing there around Kathmandu. What are some of the other things that you do? Uh, so our course, basically, it's a compact course of four weeks uh, in the field. So it starts a couple of months ahead with the assignments, like pre-course assignment. Mm -hmm. We ask our participant to write to essays mm -hmm. and submit before the start of the course in the field and in that one mm -hmm. month the first one week is conducted in Kathmandu where we have practicals and theoretical portion and yeah it's a hmm. kind of busy schedule starting Real. early morning to till oh, evening long days yeah and yeah. with lectures and clinical scenarios so now we have moved our rock climbing part 
to Kathmandu because mm. of logistic problems. But we are still looking for better venues where we can have excellent rock climbing trainings. And we also incorporated a helicopter, half day of helicopter training, where we teach how to find an appropriate landing site for helicopter in the wilderness and how to load the patient in, inside helicopter and how to unload them. So and basically these activities are conducted in Kathmandu and after that we trek or travel with a vehicle up to Himalayan region. Mm. So we are planning our next course again in Manang. So one week we'll be in Himalayan Rescue Association Adam Center Manang. in Manang. Uh -huh. So it will be theoretical portion a little bit, uh, included clinical scenarios and more practicals. After that, we'll go to glacier uh, in called Kangla Glacier, which is at around 5,000 meters. So we spend whole one week there. Wow, and, and 5,000 meters, yeah, nice. Yeah, and train there. Uh, so it's uh, more of crevasse rescue, how to ice climb. Uh, so we have a very nice venue. Uh, which is like a huge football ground of ice where you can wow. Wow, uh, practice walking like uh, the area is really nice because uh, there are few crevasses in that area and there are other areas where there are crevasses where we can practice a crevasse rescue and ice climbing as well. Wow, very good. How many students do you usually have? So previously we used to have around 15 students. Since last year we started taking 20, around 20 mm. students and uh, they are from all around the world. So last year we had uh, from Australia, US, Canada, Sweden and wow. UK and not to forget we are trying to make doctors available for Nepal. So right. we have our group of Nepali doctors who are participating in the course. Oh, that's yeah. great. We are trying to build a group of Nepali doctors who can work in the mountains and help in the rescue. Have they done that, the Nepali doctors? Uh, yeah, so mm -hmm. the previous graduates, uh, they started working in the remote areas. Like I worked after my DIM course in Kunde Hospital and my friends, they worked in Everest ER, Manang Health Post. Mm -hmm. So we are trying, and my friends did help in uh, rescue of avalanche victim in 2014 and 15 in the Everest. Right, yeah, right. so we are coming up and we are doing the activities uh, like rescue. That is great. And what about the instructors? Some are Nepali, like I know Buddha is, I love the name Buddha, and some of the other people. And then you have some instructors from other countries come in as well and help out? or how Yeah, it? since in Nepal, uh, wilderness medicine or mountain medicine is relatively new. So we have a Dr. Buddha Basnath who has been working in this area for long. So he is our instructor. And we have a young instructor who are coming up after the DIM courses. Apart from that, we have instructors from United Kingdom, United States, Italy, Switzerland, mm. and they are all mix of experts in altitude medicine, in emergency medicine, and in infectious diseases and wilderness medicine. Well, wow, yes. I'm ready to sign up. How, how does one sign up to take your course? 
So we have our website www.mmsn.org.np. So this is the home website of Mountain Medicine Society of Nepal, the organizer of Nepalese DIM course. So you can log on to that website and search for DIM diploma course section in it and you'll find more information in it. So www.mmsn.org.np and are there certain requirements for people to sign up for the DIM course? Uh, well, we take health professional, mostly our participants are doctors mm -hmm. and even medical students in their final years, they can take the course. However, the diploma is provided once they complete their med school. Very good. Well, yeah. enjoy your stay with us and thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having me here. All right, good it luck. It was my pleasure. Ah, hazur. <laughs> <laughs>